Hi, I'm Greg Lefebvre, and this is The Compulsive Storyteller, a series of short personal stories where we explore the idea that truth is stranger than fiction. This week's episode, entitled Bad Cop, Good Cop, gives us three shorties about police brutality. In Cops at the Diner, we see how a couple of New York State troopers rough up a young man because of his long hair. Then in Get Off the Car, we see what happens when a rookie New York City cop clubs the wrong innocent bystander, a teacher no less. Finally, in Boston Cops, we witness the police response to a racist attack on a group of African-American men and their white friend. Bad Cop, Good Cop All the recent deaths of people of color at the hands of the police certainly point to a systematic racism that has existed since the founding of America. It is only the advent of the smartphone that has captured this for the whole world to see. After the murder of George Floyd, I decided as a privileged white male to sit down and make a list of all the instances of police brutality and malfeasance that I've been subjected to. My list quickly grew to 36 occasions that I could remember and ranged from shoves and verbal abuse to a few different nights in jail and a couple of good, solid beatings. I am in no way equating the troubles visited on me when I simply stuck up for myself and refused to take abuse to those of people of color. The point in sharing these stories is that any one of my run-ins with the police could have been fatal had I been a black or brown person. What follows are three stories from my long list. Cops at the Diner In my senior year of college, I had long hair to my mid-back, and it caused me a world of trouble. On this occasion, I had just hitchhiked from Boston, where I went to school, to a rural spot not far from my parents' house in Del Mar, New York. My ride dropped me off on the New York State Thruway itself between two exits at mile marker 140. My landmark was a stand of stately pines just on the other side of the perimeter fence of the thruway. I walked across to the fence, threw my gear over, and then myself as well. A short walk downhill through the pines brought me to a country diner where I called my mom from the payphone outside the front door and asked her to come and pick me up. There were usually a couple of pickups and a car or two parked outside. On this day, there was only one shiny new dark blue New York State Troopers car. After my call, I hung around outside for a bit, then decided to go in for a cup of coffee. As I entered the diner, there were two New York State Troopers in full get-up with jodhpurs straight-brimmed hats who just stood up and were about to leave. One of them looked me up and down and said with a smile, So what do we have here? Is it a girl or is it a boy? Without a moment's hesitation, I said, I'm a fucking boy, and then attempted to walk around them. The closest cop roughly grabbed my arm, and then the two of them escorted me outside. While I wasn't smart enough to refrain from saying, I'm a fucking boy, I did know enough not to put up a struggle. They forcibly placed my hands on the front hood of their vehicle. Then, just as one of them kicked apart my feet to begin a search, my mom pulled up into the parking lot. She drove her car straight toward our little gathering and stopped just a little too close to the officers, so they had to jump back a bit, at which point I once again assumed a vertical position. 
She got out of her car and said, What seems to be the problem here, officers? A much better tack than my fucking boy comment. For a second, they seemed lost for words. Slapping around a long-haired hippie was one thing. Confronting an upper-middle-class white woman driving an expensive car was quite another. The one who had kicked my legs apart ventured, You should teach your son some manners. To which I replied, Maybe you should have some manners and not make fun of someone for having long hair. I wisely decided to leave out the part about them having to wear those silly, straight-brimmed, Smokey the Bear Ranger hats. Mom said, So I guess we're finished here. And then she turned on her heel and got back into the car while I walked around the other side, noticing that the waitress and the short-order cook were peering out of the diner window. We got in, and she stepped on the gas as she made a sweeping U-turn, spraying just enough cinders in their direction to make a point, but not to hit them. A masterful performance. Then she said, God, those hats look ridiculous. And I thought to myself, how can a guy not love a mom like that? Get off the car. When my wife and I first moved to New York City in 1969 to teach school, we lived in Washington Heights on 179th Street. It was a busy and colorful neighborhood, alive with people from all over the world. I was fond of telling visitors that it was like living at the United Nations. It was summertime, and my favorite neighbors were mostly the black and brown kids who hung out on the street. One evening I was chatting with three of them as they were leaning against a parked car. While we talked, I noticed a young police officer in uniform coming toward us. He was walking with a swagger, skillfully twirling his nightstick. When he reached our little gathering, he aggressively said to the kids, Get off the car! So all three kids stood about six inches away from the car. I said, Get off the car! He said louder this time. One of the kids responded, We are off the car! at which point the cop gave him a hard, straight poke in the stomach with his nightstick. Amidst the kids' calls of alarm, I spoke out. Whoa, whoa, there's no need to. He spun around toward me and said in a harsh tone, move along. I continued, I have a perfect right to stand here and observe, but I was cut off when he took a swing with his club and hit me hard on the right side of my neck. Move along. Damn, I said. I saw red and totally lost it. In my rage... I charged forward, grabbing him in a bear hug and attempted to throw him to the ground. He wasn't going down so easy, so we both spun in a circle like we were dancing together. By now, a number of other people, mostly kids, had gathered to watch. The two of us spun around again and then both tumbled down the three steps to the area in front of my building where the trash cans were kept. At the bottom of the steps, I ended up on top, straddling the cop while he attempted to unholster his gun. Seeing that, the crowd backed up fast. I somehow managed to knock his gun sideways, and it spun across the dirty concrete floor and disappeared underneath the stoop. I don't know why, but at this moment we both took a pause, and I jumped up and called out to the crowd, Will you all come with me to the police station? Many of the onlookers agreed and crowded around me as we headed up toward the police station while the cop was still in his hands and knees, trying to fish out his gun from under the stoop. At this point... The whole incident took a comic turn. Just as my little mob rounded the corner and the cop caught up with us, 
Two other uniformed officers came running by, yelling out, Come on, Franco, there's a cop in trouble. He then took off with them as we continued uptown. I can imagine the ribbing he took when they arrived at my building and realized that he was there to save himself. Meanwhile, we all crowded into the police station. As I started to give my story to the desk sergeant, other cops heard the commotion and appeared from various doorways. Then Franco arrived and pushed through the group and tapped my neck with his club. I'm placing you under arrest. Again, I lost it, and we started to tussle, which ended quickly as the other cops pulled us apart. By now, my wife had arrived, and I asked her, Lisa, get the names and phone numbers of all these witnesses. That move probably saved my ass, along with being a member of the teachers' union as well. But the comedy wasn't over yet. After I was escorted into a small side room for questioning, Marco charged in and started reading me my rights from his little Miranda card. I'm arresting you. You have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can... The sergeant loudly ordered the two other cops, Get him out of here. Once the sergeant learned that I was a New York City teacher, his tone became considerably more respectful because the teachers and police have sister unions. Then he said, Oh, no, what a mess. How could this happen? So I told him the whole story, ending with my request to file a civilian complaint. He then left to get Marco's side of the story. Upon his return, he said, This is a real shit show, but here's the deal. If you file a civilian complaint, he'll only get a slap on the wrist. But if he files a case against you for assaulting an officer, you could be sentenced to a mandatory one year in prison. I responded, Are you kidding me? He clubbed me for no reason. The sergeant continued, Well, we have two officers who will testify in court that you attacked him first. Here my jaw dropped. You gotta be shitting me. There were no other officers around. Unbelievable. He went on in a more conciliatory tone. Well, why don't you just sit here for a while and consider your options? I'll send in your wife. I was so upset and angry, I felt like I should go to court. But my wife finally convinced me that my chances of winning were slim to none. The sergeant returned, and I begrudgingly agreed not to file a complaint. But look, sergeant, this guy's a hothead. He's going to go off on someone and probably shoot them. He responded, how about I promise to take him under my wing and make sure this doesn't happen again? This was actually his first day on the job, he said with a smirk. With that, they brought Marco back in, and the sergeant asked us both to shake hands and make peace. I was at first unwilling, but when I finally held my hand out, Marco refused. Officer, the sergeant demanded, shake the man's hand and apologize, now. And then Marco did what he was told. I wasn't happy about how the situation was resolved, but there was one consolation. For years after that, every time I saw Marco on the street, he did a quick U-turn and disappeared. It always made me smile when I noticed he was never carrying his nightstick. Boston Cops when I first moved to Boston, I didn't know a single soul. After finding a beautiful three-bedroom apartment in an old five-story brick Victorian townhouse at 918 Beacon Street, I was nervous about making rent. So I made the mistake of accepting the first two candidates who applied to be my roommates. One was a complaint manager at Sears, and the other a clinically depressed gay man. A couple months passed, and it turned out that the Sears complaint manager 
who also collected the rent from myself and the other roommate, was pocketing the money and not paying the rent. He also obviously didn't let us see any of the legal notices that he received, demanding payment and threatening eviction. In early November, after a long day at work, I entered my building. In the lobby, one of the first floor tenants told me that the police and management company had come by in the morning and evicted us. My two roommates, who were in the apartment at the time, had hurriedly arranged to move out, but because I wasn't around, all my belongings had to be put in the hallway and the locks were changed. My downstairs neighbor, one Courtney de Costa Edwards III, had kindly moved most of my stuff downstairs into his apartment so that it wouldn't be picked over by the other tenants. Courtney was a very imposing figure, standing over six feet tall, African-American, and a former linebacker for Oklahoma State. He was a big teddy bear of a guy, but he possessed a certain noble bearing as well. All these characteristics sound contradictory, but they coexisted nicely in Courtney, who also turned out to be a real gentleman. He invited me in and made me a cup of tea, while I absorbed the news that I was now homeless. As we sat and talked, his other two roommates arrived. They were also African-American, and both turned out to be interesting men. Larry Parker was a really big fellow. My guess was that he weighed close to 300 pounds, but he was exceptionally light on his feet. As I got to know him, I discovered at one of our parties that he was a great dancer. He was also former All-Air Force judo champ. The third roommate, a male model named Eric Richards, was incredibly good-looking and had appeared in fashion spreads in Ebony, Jet, and other such magazines. While I sipped my tea, Courtney left the room to have a brief conversation with the other two roommates, and then all three came back in and offered me their spare bedroom, quote-unquote, until I got back on my feet. They wouldn't hear of accepting rent money, and then Larry and Eric disappeared into the hallway, reappearing shortly, lugging my mattress, which they put in the back empty room. I was so moved by all this help from almost total strangers that I teared up a little, which I managed to hide from my new roommates. As the weeks passed, we all became fast friends. They were part of a whole circle of mostly black men who often hung out on our pad, where they all talked and discussed and argued and drank and smoked weed and on weekends partied. Before this, I had no friends at all, and now I'd been welcomed into a big circle of new friends, which was a unique experience for a loner like myself, and it was great fun. There was always something going on in the apartment, but mostly there were animated discussions of all sorts, about politics, race and racism, about women, and the biggest topic of all, the folly of the Vietnam War. A few of the guys in the group had served in the war. The winter passed and spring blossomed, and still none of them would hear of me paying any rent, which I felt bad about. So I took a certain pleasure in doing nice things for all of them, showing up with beer and booze from the liquor store down the block, buying gadgets for the kitchen, filling the refrigerator with food, and even bringing flowers, which were warmly accepted and appreciated all around. My roommates seemed to have a different attitude towards money and masculinity than most of my former white friends. On a particularly nice spring afternoon, the four of us were seated on the front stoop of our building, basking in the soft sunlight that filtered through a cherry tree in front of the building that was in full blossom. Life couldn't have been better. Perfection, though, rarely seems to last for long, 
at least in my estimation. And sure enough, just then a carload of what turned out to be drunk Boston College hockey players cruised by with the windows down, and one of them yelled out, Fuckin'! And then he used the N-word, plural. And the other three echoed these sentiments while they all gave us the finger. Having never been on the receiving end of this type of racism, I was stunned. As the car continued by, Larry was quick to his feet, then cupped his hands and yelled back, Your mother's a... And then he used the N-word too. The logic of his yelling this completely escaped me, but it brought the car to a halt, and then it backed up rapidly. As it came to a stop in front of our building, and all four doors swung open, Courtney, Eric, and I stood in frozen amazement. But Larry charged across the 20 feet between us and them, hitting the rear door with all his weight as the hockey player inside was halfway out. He screamed in agony and fell to the ground as his limbs were crushed. And then Larry spun to his right and grabbed the emerging occupant of the front seat, hurling him across the front hood of the car into traffic. A passing car slammed on the brakes and narrowly missed him. The hockey players were now in complete disarray. The third guy, who was exiting the rear door on the street side, jumped back in and then moved over to make room for the guy who'd been lying in the street and had now hobbled back to the car. The driver pulled slowly away, with the rear curbside door still open, while the two men in back struggled to pull in the guy who'd been crushed by Larry and was still whimpering in pain. Larry then cupped his hands and bellowed, Get the fuck out of here, you racist shit! He then turned around toward us with a smile, slapped his hands back and forth against one another like he was dusting them off after doing a dirty job and returned to the stoop. We've all seen way too many action movies where the hero, maybe it's James Bond or The Rock or Jean-Claude Van Damme, easily dispatches a half a dozen bad guys, perfectly executing all the right moves. However, we watch knowing full well that it's all either CGI or stuntmen, just smoke and mirrors, really. But I'd never seen anything like this before or since. A single man attacking a carload of drunk, racist jocks and in a matter of seconds sending them packing. Wow, what a performance. I can still recall the scene vividly after all these years. As high fives were passed around and rave reviews of the fight ensued, Eric called out, Larry, you're the man. I added, fucking A, man. Talk about kicking ass. Then Courtney chimed in with a note of sarcasm. Larry, maybe you really were all Air Force judo champ. As we continued slapping Larry on the back, the dark reality of this life reared its ugly head in the form of a Boston police cruiser with its sirens wailing and lights flashing as it came to a screeching halt in front of 918, and three white uniformed officers quickly exited the car. The lead cop spoke to me first, I'm guessing because I was white. We got a report that you guys attacked some students from Boston College, a group of hockey players actually, who were driving by. I decided that maybe I should accept the fact that they were addressing me and take the lead, and my three friends wisely decided to let me do the talking. I'm sorry, officers, I said. I don't mean any disrespect, but we did not attack any car. Then I asked nicely, can I tell you what happened? Go ahead, he continued, now taking out a notebook which was far better than any of the other items he might have pulled out. We were all sitting on the stoop, enjoying this fine spring weather, I said. This for some reason made the other two cops smirk. When a car full of drunk young men, the Boston College hockey players that you mentioned, 
drove by, and all of them yelled out nasty racial slurs, including the N-word. The lead cop was actually taking this all down. We responded in kind. The car slammed on its brakes, and all four occupants exited the vehicle, obviously intending to do us harm, and a fight ensued. However, only one member of our group took part in the fight. He's a former soldier, an Army veteran, well-trained in combat. He pretty much beat up all four occupants and sent them on their way. Which one of you was that? The officer asked. I'm sorry again, officer, but we're not going to answer that unless advised to do so by our lawyer, whom I put in a call to immediately after we were attacked. Larry, Eric, and Courtney all nodded in unison, and all of them, like myself, resisted the impulse to smile at the charade that was unfolding. You have my word, officers, that that is exactly what happened, and there are other residents in the building who can attest to that fact, in court and under oath if necessary. The officer wanted all our names, and I suggested that he only needed one contact, namely me, and I presented him with my driver's license. While he looked over the license and mispronounced my last name, I continued, Gentlemen, it's a lovely day. We were all just minding our own affairs when this whole nasty business ensued, which was in no way whatsoever provoked by our party. I was trying to make my plea sound as legalistic as possible. We were attacked by them, and we will testify to that fact, but also we're willing to forego pressing charges ourselves and let bygones be bygones. Then I paused and said, So what do you say? The sergeant looked stern and unimpressed, but nonetheless he pulled aside his partners. They had a brief discussion, and then he returned, saying, Let me leave you with just a warning this time, but if I'm ever called here again, rest assured you will all be arrested. Is that clear? There was a chorus of yes sirs from our side, and the officers climbed back into their squad car, and off they went. As soon as they were out of sight, we once again exchanged high fives. And from then on, my nickname in the group was Counselor Lefebvre. My final word to my friends? Whoever said there's no such thing as a good cop? Impulsive Storyteller is produced by Peter Kakoma and me, Greg Lefebvre. This week's episode featured an original score by Peter Kakoma, who also made our theme music. If you've enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe to The Compulsive Storyteller on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts, and it would be great if you could leave a review. Follow the show on Instagram, at The Compulsive Storyteller, and check out our website at thecompulsivestoryteller.com. Thanks for listening, and if you didn't like this one, the next one will be another story. Mm-hmm.